Good morning. We will be looking at Genesis chapter 38 this morning. As we're working through Genesis, we will soon be reviewing the life of Joseph and seeing how he prefigured Christ in many ways. Today is not that day. We do not have a Joseph type in our passage today in this chapter. Chapter 37 saw Jacob's son, all their sons, all of his sons, sell their young brother who took him to Egypt at Judah's suggestion. Judah argued that killing Joseph would profit them nothing. And Jacob was overwhelmed with grief, thinking his favorite son is dead and that all his sons had conspired to tell him to think this was so. This chapter follows right after that. And it's a sad scene, and it reflects poorly on mankind. And the very tribe from which Jesus came demonstrates the futility of thinking that man can contribute to his spiritual well-being. Left to himself, left to his own tribe, Man will follow after what pleases the flesh and seek that which is unhelpful. The tribe benefits us nothing. The lion who would come from this tribe benefits us everything. So, start off looking in Genesis 38, the first 11 verses, which I have called trouble in the tribe. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chezeb when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Judah left his brothers and his father. He left God's covenant people. And he went and settled in a place that in David's day would provide refuge in the caves that were found there. When David was hiding from Saul, he was where Judah was today, basically. Judah wasn't looking for a refuge from his enemies, however, when he went there to this place. 
I think he was trying to escape his own guilty conscience and deceiving his father. And oftentimes when we do something against somebody, rather than seeking forgiveness and reconciliation and expressing repentance, we'll tend to remove ourselves. Like you can run away from your troubles. That's mankind's solution. And I think that's what we see here. He runs to the place where he shouldn't be. He moves away from God's covenant people and he puts himself in a vulnerable place. You remember Lot went away from God's covenant people when he ran away from the wicked people. And he went into a cave by himself and his daughters. And what went into the cave with him? His sin. Moving away from God's covenant people. Risky business. Not only has he removed himself physically from these people, he has acted contrary to the express instruction and desires of the patriarchs that he is supposed to represent. Listen from chapter 24 and the first four verses. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, swear by, swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, you will not take a wife for my son from the Canaanites. Abram's pretty emphatic. Isaac didn't end up getting a wife from the Canaanites. Now, if you look at chapter 28, the first three verses, you'll see this repeated. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padamaran to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife there from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of the peoples. Jacob was pretty emphatic. He learned this from his father. Judah and his other brothers didn't grow up ignorant of what their father and grandfather had been instructed. Even Esau, if you remember, he, he learned, he heard this, and he recognized that his father was angry with him because he had taken two Canaanite women as wives. Judah, he goes, acts more like Esau than he acts like Jacob. And he goes and takes a Canaanite woman for his wife, and he has three sons. It doesn't give us the time span, but we see later on in the context that Ur and Onan were older than Shelah. Shelah was born later. Don't know how much, but he was young compared to his brothers. And we don't know how it transpired that Judah found Tamar to be Ur's wife. She just, he just finds her, and that's all we know about her. But two sons in a row, God kills. Wicked children of Judah. Reminds me of what we see later on in Israel's history when Eli has two 
what the Bible calls worthless fellows as sons, and God kills them. We're not told anything about what Ur did that God considered wicked. We are told that by Onan taking steps to not provide an heir for Ur, God said, that's wicked, and he killed him. This Let me get ahead of myself here. What we see in the life of Judah is that God chooses some and keeps them in spite of their rebellion. See, Judah was as guilty as his two oldest children of rebelling against God. But God didn't kill him. His two sons got no mercy and God killed them. Some are kept, some are judged. Acting much in the same way as those who are not put to death. The heart is what is wicked in natural man. And even the good things that he does are sin before holy God. You'll recall that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that just in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. People doing the average, normal, ordinary things. Yet we know that Yahweh said about this people in Genesis 6 that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Natural man. He can marry. He can give in marriage. He can rejoice. He can have fellowship. Every thought and intent of his heart is only evil continually. In our text, Judah represents God's elect, forgiven and commanded to walk rightly. Ur represents the people of the world, not capable of doing good. Everything they do is stained with the sin which controls them and by which they will be judged. Now, his second son, he's told to take Ur's widow as a wife and provide an heir. This prefigures what's later called the Leverite marriage. It was common in the ancient Near East culture to do this because it was important for the men to have somebody to carry on their household, especially firstborn men, had to have an heir. Children are, were important in this way. Now, Onan refuses to meet this obligation. This first child would not be considered his. It would be considered hers. It would be a substitute. And, it, and Onan would have no claim to him. And for this reason, God put him to death. Because this was an honorable practice, and his father gave him a command to do what was honorable. And he refused. Now, both of these men may have been used by Satan to try and snuff out the promised seed. We don't know. We do know that Satan is not ignorant 
of Yahweh's redemptive plan, and he's been active for a long time trying to eliminate or delay his own defeat. He is a dangerous creature, one which we do not, dare not engage in our own strength. Judah's third son is very young, and Judah feared for his life, told Tamar to remain a widow because he thought to himself, he said, lest he also die like his brothers. Judah's worried about his own progeny. So Tamar is to stay as a widow and stay in her father's house ostensibly until Shelah gets old enough to marry her. We'll see that here in the next passage. The record of the tribe of Judah up to this point is not encouraging at all. It's reasonable to assume, at least in my little mind, that by rebelling against the instruction of his grandfather and father about who to marry, that Judah may have set the example to his sons to rebel against God in their own lives. And this is a warning to us who are fathers and grandfathers, mothers and grandmothers. The example we set for our children will have an impact on them. We can say this and do this, and children are not fools. They will know that what you truly believe will be worked out in your life. And you can't say one thing and do another and have credence with anybody. Let's go on and see how things get worse in verses 12 through 19. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hirah, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and he was not given to, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, I will send a young goat from the flock. And she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. This, this paragraph says now in the process of time. We're not told how much time has passed. Other translations say after a long time. It, it is revealed in this paragraph that Shelah is now grown up and he's an adult man. So maybe five years, maybe ten years. Something like that has gone by. The time is set in our text by the death of Judah's wife. That's the event that has happened. It triggers all that follows, basically. 
Judah's youngest son now is eligible to marry, but he has not been given Tamar as his wife as she was expecting. This is the conflict that we see worked out in here. Now, the setup for Judah's fall is ordinary. There's nothing very extreme going on here. After the mourning period for Judah's wife was over, he and his friend go to share their sheep. Ordinary business for those kind of guys. Tamar is advised to go with her father-in-law. She changes out of her widow's clothes. Apparently, widows had distinctive garb. And since a long time had passed since Ur's death, maybe it was now time for her to step out of that role. She was looking to be given to Shelah, but that had not taken place. It appears that the timing of the change of garb at this time is part of a plan of Tamar to take revenge on Judah for not giving her to her third, his third son. Now, one thing that I admit I'm not, I'm at a loss to explain is how easily men in this culture thought sleeping with a prostitute was acceptable. There's, there's no, I mean, it's just reported here as a straight narrative. He thinks that she's a harlot. They negotiate terms and he goes to bed with her. She sits near the entrance of a spring, an open place that was on the way to Timnah, where the sheep are being sheared. So she changes out of her widow's garments and she puts herself where she can be seen by the men that are going to town because she knows her father-in-law is going to do this. And when he sees her, she's wearing a veil so he can't see her face. And apparently this was a common practice for cult prostitutes. They wore a veil so that they wouldn't be recognized by people during in the city and whatnot. And so he thinks that she's a harlot. They negotiate a price for her service. And now here's what's interesting. She demands certain things from Judah. This shows us that Tamar was a shrewd woman. The things that she asked for. Yeah, the goat's fine. But in the meantime, give me your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. These are very personalized items that would be recognizable. So that's what she asks for. It seems that she intended to be seen as a prostitute. As a way of getting vengeance on her father-in-law for not providing Shelah for a husband. After this scandalous encounter, Tamar removes her veil and she puts back on her widow's garments as if nothing's happened. Oh, I'm not really done with widowhood, apparently. So I'm, I'm back here waiting for my husband. The ruse was over. But she was with the child of her father-in-law. So let's look on at the next set of verses, 20 through 23, where the trap has been set for Judah. In verse 20, Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, 
where's the harlot who was open openly by the side of the roadside? And they said, there is no harlot in this place. So he, re- he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of that place says there is no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be ashamed. For I sent this young goat and have not found her. Now, in this short passage, we see Judah acting as though he thinks he's an honorable man. He's he's slept with this prostitute. He wants to send the goat that he agreed to give her and he wants to get his stuff back. But she's not there and she's not even known by the people who are familiar with the place. Judah is satisfied that he's done what is right by trying to pay her the goat. And it appears that he's more concerned about his reputation amongst these pagan men that he has befriended than he is about what actually happened. Because if the woman is discovered and known publicly and she has his stuff, then the items that she has, that that would show that Judah was her customer. Better to drop the matter, not stir up trouble, and not try to find her lest she reveal that she has the stuff. That's what I say. see is going on in Judah's mind here. Not a tribal leader that fosters much good feeling. No reason to follow this guy. Now let's look at 24 through 26 where the noose gets a little bit tighter. It came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with a child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these things belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give to her Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Now, when the baby starts showing, Tamar's family can only think that she's been playing the harlot. How else could she be in this condition? She didn't have a husband. Everyone in Judah knew that she didn't have a husband. And here she is with child. Must be a harlot. This news is brought to Judah and he he kind of foreshadows David, who was outraged by Nathan's story about the poor farmer's lamb who was slain. Judah is outraged by his daughter-in-law's behavior. Let her be burned! He doesn't know. David's words in response to Nathan's story, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He didn't know at that point that he was the man. So these two men, they, they show us that man, he can get outraged at evil when he thinks it's somebody else. Are we as outraged with our own evil as these men were with what they thought was somebody else's evil? 
Oh, we have plenty that we should be outraged about, I say. Man puts himself in the position of being judge when he thinks that somebody else is evil that he's got to take care of. Let her be burned. Let him die. But wait. When Nathan revealed to David that he was the man, what did he do? He repented. He cried out to God for mercy. What did Judah do when it was revealed that he was the man? David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Judah said, she has been more righteous than I. And note this, Judah repented. So easily he went to the prostitute. And when he discovers the sin that he's committed, the text said, he never knew her again. He stayed away from her like he should have done all along. Note also, Tamar, shrewd young lady, she didn't come up to these people and say, I got Judah's stuff. She said, the man who did this, he gave me this. To, who do, to whom do these things belong? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. She knew. She's playing, she's playing the innocent girl here. Not the innocent girl. This was not a pretense. This, you know, I didn't know this. It, it was to put Judah in his place, not to allow him to escape her trap that she had set because the whole sordid affair was vengeance on Tamar's part because Judah had not given her a husband. Natural man, natural woman, Vengeance. Personal vengeance. It's an ugly thing. Let's look at the last few verses here where we see providence revealed. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Interesting. This is the second set of twins recorded in Scripture. Jacob and Esau being the first set of twins that we know about. Here, one puts out his hand and he has a red thread tied around it, identifying him as the firstborn. But the other guy came out first, laying claim to that privilege. Perez means to break through. That's why he was named that, because he broke through, shoving his brother aside. The secondborn, the one with the red thread, was named Zerah. Esau was firstborn out of that set of twins, and he was very hairy. And most theologians say that this description refers to the color of hair that colored his body. That he was red-headed 
from foot to tail, basically. He's a very hairy kid. Red hair is what they think. Now, in the second set of twins, Jacob, who was the second born, the first set of twins, second born, Jacob was the chosen one. Esau came out first, covered with red hair, not the chosen one. Jacob was chosen. In this set of twins, the guy who reached his hand out first has the red thread around it. He's the second born, but he's not chosen. The one who broke through and came out first. He turns out to be chosen. How do we know this? Jacob... Progeny goes to Shelah and ends, goes through Tamar, and we see Perez. And we will see in a minute where Perez lines up. But let's pause here and note, there's no mention that Tamar ever gets remarried. The Bible doesn't say one way or the other. Her life in the Bible ends here with the birth of these two sons. We see in Ruth chapter 4 that Tamar giving birth was seen as a blessing of significance in the history of the Hebrew nation. When Boaz takes Ruth as his wife, the townsfolk bless him saying, May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Tamar was, Tamar's firstborn was in Boaz lineage. Because in Ruth 4 we also say, now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez beget Hezron. Hezron beget Ram. And Ram begot Anabinadab. And Anabinadab begot Nashan. And Nashon begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz, Judah, Perez, Boaz. We all know the offspring from Boaz, do we not? It says in Ruth, Boaz begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Matthew's genealogy goes to connect this to Christ. This is the hand of providence. The great God moving sinful men to go where He wants them and to produce what He desires. And just as with Lot, we do not see a great man of God in Judah. And just as Lot is called righteous, so Judah's standing is seen as one of the twelve tribes that was essential to Israel's identity as a nation. Neither one of them were clothed in their own righteousness. For your own righteousness is never going to bring you peace with God or right standing with Him. One scene may shed some light on Judah's developing character. When the brothers go to Egypt to buy food, which we'll see in a few chapters... Genesis 43 and 44. Judah is the spokesman for the brothers. Almost like he's the the leader of the pack, if you will. 
He pleads for Benjamin's life. Please let him go home. Don't withhold him from returning to our father who will die with grief if he doesn't see his youngest son again. That's what he tells this Egyptian leader that he doesn't yet know who he is. This does prompt... Well, let's read what he says in chapter 44 and uh, verse 30, starting at verse 30. Therefore, when I come to, to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray head of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety to the, for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Now, this is an impassioned plea putting himself at risk at the hand of the, of the Egyptian to let Benjamin go so that his, he already was responsible for causing his father immeasurable grief and thinking Joseph was dead. He could not bear the thought of being responsible for his father thinking Benjamin was also dead. This appears to me to be a, a maturing in Judah maybe seeing and understanding more of the providential hand of God in his life. This plea that I just read does prompt Joseph to reveal himself. He does that in the next chapter because he's emotionally affected by what Judah has said to him. So this may be a glimpse of honor in the otherwise ordinary man we know as Judah. Now, another thing I want to look at is... <clears throat> When Jacob was near death, he blesses his sons. This is in Genesis 49. Listen to the blessing spoken over Judah by Jacob in verses 8 through 12. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of all the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now, does some of the language here in this blessing of Judah cause you to think of somebody else? I think that the blessings spoken to Judah point to the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah, in various places in Scripture, he's described like this. In Psalm 145, 10, it says, All your works shall praise your name, and all the saints shall bless you. It was said of Judah that your brothers would bow down before you. All of his works shall praise him. 
Jesus is the lion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5 At the name of Christ, every knee shall bow. Right? Not just his brothers, but every human being bow down before him. Jesus rode on a donkey that was tied up, a young colt that was tied up and reserved for him. And then Isaiah 63 says this about him. The first four verses of Isaiah 63. This is who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. My blood is sprinkled, Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. The blessing that Jacob gave Judah was for Judah, but it foretold about the one who would come from this tribe, who is the lion of the tribe that is greater than Judah, greater than Jacob, greater than Isaac, and greater than Abraham. Greater than Moses who would come. The lion would tie all the redemptive fragments that we see in Scripture into a glorious tapestry, tapestry which depicts the victory of the Lamb of God. In this chapter full of sin, this last little paragraph gives us the account of the birth of two boys. And if Scripture did not give us Perez's place in the redemptive plan of Yahweh, if Scripture didn't tell us of the blessing of Judah, we would have nothing beyond the celebration of these two babies as the good news of chapter 38. This is why the immediate context of Scripture must give way to the analogy of faith where Scripture interprets Scripture. And this will help us see where Christ is and why He is all of this that was written. So, dear brothers and sisters, do you see the hand of providence in your life and the small details of where you live? The good things that happen to you? The trials that come your way? Are you looking to see the hand of God therein? How can we not do that, you and I, when we see it so clearly in Scripture? It's there as a comfort for us. Judah left his people and he settled amongst those who would be conquered by the nation that he represented. Not conquered when he settled there. He took a wife from people he shouldn't have been. Had children from a woman he should never have touched. But God was right there with every step of the way. That unplanned child became one of the seed bearers, seed carriers noted in the lineage of David and of the Lord. This is why we must never buy the lie that God has forgotten us, abandoned us. He cannot deny Himself. And if He has saved you, He cannot abandon you.
We know that God is sovereign and the whole world lies in the grip of the devil. Master sin rules the heart of man unless the Lord sets him free. We cannot afford to be apathetic towards those who are perishing for we were in that perilous predicament and God was kind enough to prompt someone to speak to us the words of life. And this is our calling to herald the risen Christ to every man, woman, and child. Jesus said in John 6, 38-40. Jesus said in John 6, 38-40, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this, I'm in chapter 7. Chapter 6, 38. This is more familiar to me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is making this promise that he will raise up every single one who dies in faith. Not subject to the second death. Cannot be because of the faithful one. How much confidence should this give us to be willing participants in the great gospel ministry that we are called to? We can't fail unless we, unless we do not participate. That's the only way that you can fail. The one who has come to seek and save the lost is beyond certain to bring every lost sheep into his sheepfold because he alone is the good shepherd who can do everything that he has promised to do. Note this, Judah dies in Egypt and after that his name shows up only in the phrase tribe of Judah. Judah the man lies in the ground and his tribe goes on, not because Judah was the faithful man of God, but because he was chosen to be the head of that tribe And this ties his descendants to the land promise. All 12 sons of Jacob headed up tribes, and those tribes were the basis for for dividing up land. Belonging to any of those tribes was no guarantee of eternal life. But it could distract one from the promised seed if you were focused on getting your land and forgetting the one who promised the land. Being tribal in a community of faith is not only unnecessary, it causes division in the congregation, and it can give us a false sense of belonging. I belong to my tribe, forgetting that we all belong to Christ. One tribe, our tribe rather, cannot bring us peace with God, whether your tribe is your family, whether your tribe is a group of people within the congregation. Your tribe cannot bring you peace with God. They can bring you fellowship and comfort in a lot of ways, but never allow your tribe to displace God. Paul wrote 
that there must be divisions, you know, and you speak of Apollos and you speak of Paul, but he asked the question, is Christ divided? No, Apollos and Paul were not him. We don't know if Jacob or Judah understood the linkage to the promised seed, and it's doubtful anyone would think that the child conceived that Perez would be in this line. Humanly speaking, these were illegitimate children, have no, have no place in the royal line. But this is the way man looks at things. God's not bound by man's disobedience and he's, he's not, not bound by man's obedience, rather, and he's not hampered by man's disobedience. See, Judah was marked out. Judah disobeyed God and he went over here. God's not hampered by Judah's disobedience. Man doesn't know God's next step. And so he thinks that, like, <laughs> um, I can't even remember the guy's name. Often might go there. But we, you know, we can run away from God and never outrun Him. You can work as hard as you can for God and not bind Him to your obedience. And this is why we gotta be very careful. A man can say, I'm called by God to do this. That call's not seen by God's people. We gotta be very careful. God works out all things, all things according to His purpose, beyond Satan's finding out and beyond our finding out. He does reveal some things to us, and the connection between Judah's blessing and the life of Christ, coupled with the explicit genealogical records found in Scripture, reinforce His hand of providence, wherein He works out all things for the good of those He called. And he ensures that the promise made in the garden and to Abram are brought to fulfillment just as he intended. When he spoke to the serpent, there was no question that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. There was no question that the serpent would bruise the heel of that seed. And we know from the progressive revelation of Scripture that he spoke of the Christ who would come. Everything in God's redemptive plan is so certain as to be considered complete. Paul said that your consummation is as complete in God's eyes as your justification. Your glorification is as certain as your justification. This is why we can't just be satisfied with stories from the Old Testament. You know, you, you read stories. VeggieTales was like this when they first started out. Just a nice story to make you feel good about God. Those stories have to be fleshed out and seen how they work themselves out in the plan of God to culminate in the work of Christ. They have to be enlarged and you have to pull back the veil to reveal the one about whom all of Scripture is written. It is said, we sang about it, Christ is our refuge and our rock. He is the one, he's the one who cannot be shaken. Many Psalms talk about this. He is the one who cannot be shaken. You know what that says? Everything else can be. You can be shaken. I can be shaken. We must make sure that Christ is our refuge. He is the lion 
of the tribe of Judah. He is the one that brings us peace with the God who works out all things according to His will. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being true to Yourself.